Hey, do you know that it's biblical to talk back to the preacher when he's preaching? Read, read Nehemiah chapter 8. It says, Ezra preached and the people answered back. And so here's how to do this. If this thing is going well, just say, we'll, we'll practice it right now. Say, thank you, Jesus. If I start going south, say, help him, Jesus. And if this goes really off the rails, just say, save him, Jesus. <laughs> Good morning, guys. My name is Pastor Chris, and we are moving into the second week of a series clarifying what is vertical church? What is this church about? Why are we here? What do we believe the Lord wants to do here? Last week, and God told us from Ecclesiastes 3.11 that there is a universal longing on every human heart, and that longing is for transcendence. Any conversation about church or ministry or anything needs to begin with the spiritual condition of mankind. And what we learned last week right here is that spiritually speaking, Every human being is the same. Now, that is so not the spirit of this age. The spirit of this age is every person trying to crowbar themselves into some amazingly unique personality and identity. Using 72 different genders, the color of your skin, where you grew up, where you went to school, who oppresses you in your mind. Everyone is trying to present themselves as so extraordinarily unequaled, unprecedented, matchless, and one of a kind. Side note, we've been running that play since the garden, haven't we? The same old attempt of trying to become like God. Because we know only God is unequaled, unprecedented, matchless, and in a class of his own. So while we celebrate human distinctives that show off the manifold glory of the Creator, the Bible's emphasis regarding human and humankind is not on all the things that make us different. Guys, it's all the things that make us the same. We're the same. As you look to the people on your street, the people on your family, the people on your campus, the people on the news... Stop being intimidated by all the ways they're presenting themselves as being different. Get settled on this concrete conviction that if you push through all the posing and posturing, deepest down every human heart is the same and it's longing for transcendence. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him, Augustine said. And you guys, if you have ears to hear, that is a merciful shortcut to your satisfaction. If we believe Lamentation, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes 3.11, then you don't have to spend years and years thinking about, I'll be fulfilled once I make a million dollars or marry the model or build the bigger house or buy the nicer life. Ecclesiastes 3.11 is your manufacturing label put on you by your maker, that says you will only be satisfied in him. Understanding vertical church begins with understanding the universal longing. Once we understand that, then we need to understand, secondly, the singular distinction. Open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, and it's a rescue story. 
God is rescuing his people from Egypt, and he's dealing with his people through a tabernacle or a pop-up tent that would serve as a house of worship as Israel journeyed through uh, the wilderness. And the context of chapter 33 is right after the golden calf. Do you guys remember that? Do you remember that? Yeah, the golden calf. If you remember, Moses went up on Mount Sinai, and he was up there a long time, 40 days. And so the people thought, Moses, he ain't coming back. He's dead. And even though God led them out of Egypt and literally opened the Red Sea and performed so many miracles, Israel, just like you and me, immediately abandons God. They melt down the gold, which was a gift from God, as they left Egypt and they created of it, out of it a golden calf and they worshipped it by having a giant idolatrous orgy. That's what the phrase in Exodus 32, verse 6, rose up to play means. So Moses comes down, he tries to clean things up the best he can, but the real question is, what's God going to do about this? What does this mean for their relationship with God? Exodus 33, beginning in verse 1, if you're there, say there. Okay. We're not playing church now, guys. We're hearing from God himself in his word. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. It's talking about the promised land. Verse 2, I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, underline this, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Do you catch that? How does God respond to the golden calf? If I was God, I'd be thinking, meteorite, forest fire, right? sinkhole, in preposterous mercy, God says, have the land that I promised. Go take it. In fact, I'm going to personally send an angel to clear the way for you guys. You guys can have everything you've ever wanted. You want freedom? Go have freedom. You want milk and honey? It's all there for you, but I will not be going with you. Verse 4. When the people heard this, circle this, disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff neck. That's, that's the picture of an ox or a donkey resisting being led. You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may... Know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from, from Mount Horeb onward. Not only is this the worst disobedience in Israel's history, it's also the worst disaster. In verses 4 through 6, the music has stopped. The party is over. 
God's people are now taking off their celebratory ornaments and weeping and mourning. Why? Because even though they were just promised everything they ever wanted, they get everything they've ever wanted except the personal presence of God. You might be thinking, wait, I thought God was, was present everywhere. I thought he was omnipresent so how can he say, I'm not going with you? Well, let's just pull aside here and do a little bit of theology. When we use the word omnipresent, would you say that to your neighbor? Say omnipresent. Good. Omni is Latin for all. It just means God is all present everywhere at all times. God's presence transcends space and time. And he's not like a substance that he's more present here and less present there. The fullness of God's presence is in every place at every time. Psalm 139, verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Everywhere, you are there. God is everywhere. So what does James 4.8 mean then when God says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you? God, I thought you were already here. Aren't you everywhere? What about Psalm 34.18? God is near the brokenhearted. How irrelevant is that verse? God is near everyone. He's everywhere. Those verses aren't speaking about his general omnipresence, but his manifest presence. Say to your neighbor, manifest presence. Good. While God is present everywhere at all times, he is not present everywhere at all times in the same way. God's manifest presence is his active engagement in a specific place at a specific time in a specific efficacious way. It means he's doing something. He's working in power. Something special is happening right here because God is here in a special way. At Pentecost, God's omnipresence was in the room, just like his omnipresence is in every room. True or false, is God's presence in Walmart right now? Yes. But when the Holy Spirit descended with tongues of fire in the sound of a rushing wind, That was manifest presence. That was something special. And when God's presence at church is the same way his presence is at Walmart, there's a problem. We're we're going after manifest presence. And here's what we have to see in in verse 4. God's people who had experienced manifest presence on a daily basis as God led them through the wilderness... Pillar of cloud, uh, fire, and smoke. When God brings them to the edge of everything they've ever wanted, and he says, I'm going to give it to you all, everything. I'm just going to take my manifest presence away. That wasn't mildly disappointing. For those who had experienced manifest presence, it was the worst disaster in Israel's history. This is not hyperbole, guys. If we have everything but not God's manifest presence, we have nothing. If God said to you, I'll give you everything you want. 
You want it, I'll give it. You want the happy family, it's yours. You want the huge house, I'll give it to you. I'll even send an angel before you to clear the way for blessings on blessings on blessings. And it won't be just for you. I'll do it for your family. I'll do it for your friends. I'll do it for your church, everyone in your community. I'll give you everything you guys want. Heck, all of St. Paul, take it all. The only thing is you'll have to be content with just my omnipresence. Would that be mildly disappointing or the worst disaster you could think of? What about for this church, guys? If God said, you guys can have it all, have all the buildings. <laughs> there will be a line of people waiting to get in every single Sunday morning. You're going to have the best music. You're going to preach the best sermons. You're going to have the biggest platform. You'll just have to be content with my general presence. Vertical church exists to say, no deal. We believe that worse than a pastor failing, listen, worse than a church shooting is God taking his manifest presence away. It is the worst thing that could happen for God to remove his willingness to work, his power to do things that we cannot do among us. That is the worst disaster that could ever happen to the church of Jesus Christ. The worst disaster for any person, especially any church, is for God to say, verse 3, I will not go with you. So what did they do? Look at verse 7. Moses isn't taking it on the chin. Look at verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Oh, this is so sweet. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. The way Moses responds to the worst disaster is by making the best decision. Moses knows something you and I need to get this morning, and it's this, that we can actually affect God's manifest presence. We can affect it negatively. My heart is haunted by Isaiah 59.1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short to save. His ear is not too deaf to hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Guys, are we conscious that every action and motive either promotes or discourages God's active engagement among us. Every unchecked thought, every careless sentence, every attitude from every volunteer, all of it seen and know by God who is eager to give his manifest presence to the humble and the holy. We can affect God's manifest presence negatively, but what Moses knows is that we can also affect it positively. That is what draw near to me and I will draw near to you. That's it. Isaiah 66 too, but to this person I will look with favor. Those who are humble, broken in spirit and uh, tremble at my word. So, so Moses says, guys, 
Let's not just sit around and be okay with omnipresence. Let's go after it. Let's go. Let's seek the Lord. And so he goes outside the city, and he sets up a tent, and he calls that tabernacle the tent of meeting. And watch this, verse 8. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, just imagine, we're talking about like 3 million people here. All the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, now here's manifest presence, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Verse 10, and when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. It's epic. Moses is going into the tent to experience the manifest presence of God. But, but what, else, what is everyone else doing? They're watching from their own tent. They're standing off in a distance. Note this. Manifest presence from afar equals religion. Christian religion is often just the experience of God's manifest presence, not firsthand, but through someone else who experienced manifest presence. I want to encounter God today. I'm going to go listen to a John Piper sermon. I'm going to go read a Francis Chan book. Well, God does speak through John Piper sermons in Francis Chan books. But listen, don't make your Christianity mere tent watching. We've been called to more than just watching pastor popular walk into a tent, come out, we all gather around and say, what did God say? And he says, oh, it's in your next book? Okay, I guess I'll pre-order it then. Can you tell I'm getting kind of cynical on modern evangelicalism? Guys, through the finished work of Jesus Christ, you get to go into the tent. You get to go in and meet with God face to face in a way that Moses couldn't even dream. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You're not just in a tent. God is in you. And you get to commune with God. See it in verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. What do you call an encounter with manifest presence face to face? Call that revival. Moses wants to experience God himself and through Christ way more than Moses. You can commune with God. He will actually speak words to you through this book. You can speak words back to him through prayer. And it's become, the the blessing has become so commonplace that we've lost the wonder of God is talking to me. And I'm talking to God. This is crazy. This is what three million people used to stand and watch every single day. And this, guys, is the heart of vertical church. As we look around today at at so many churches, it just seems like everyone's so content with God's omnipresence instead of pushing after God's manifest presence. 
Vertical church, like Moses, all this is is us going outside of the city, setting up a tent where we can do one thing, push for face-to-face communion with the manifest presence of the living God. That's the whole plan of this church. And maybe God is called, would call you to that in your life. To be like Moses in verse 8, to go outside this church, go outside this city, and build a new place, a new tent of meeting to commune with God. Guys, vertical church exists so that every city, suburb, and small town in Minnesota will have a tent of meeting constructed. A place where people can actually go in and not just experience general omnipresence, experience window-rattling, earth-shattering, life-altering, manifest presence. In fact, right now, let me just pray, God, if you would call anyone in this place to go do that, to spend their life on that, would you convict them now and say, go, son, go, daughter. I want to commune with my people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what does Moses say to God in the tent of meeting? Look at verse 12. This is epic because now we actually get to go into the tent with Moses and see what was said. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and and you've also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight... Please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. The word favor is the most repeated word in chapter 33. It's used 122 times in the Old Testament, 11 times in this chapter alone. And you guys, I think as good, reformed people, we don't talk about the favor of God nearly enough. And we don't go after and seek God's favor enough as a church. Do you know this? Do you know how God's not running low on favor this morning? Praise God for that. Sometimes we read about what God has done in in times past. We read about the revivals and we think, man, I just, I wish God would still do that today. He is still doing that today. You got to get a global vision. The greatest revivals ever are happening right now in other countries. And we exist so that it would happen again in this country. God is not low on favor. He works. He will work. God's not tired, and he's not tired of you. He's doing great things all all throughout the world today, and he's eager and ready and amped to do great things through you. And some of us just need to get a vision for this, that I exist to seek the favor of God, especially young people today. When I look around, I I would describe most people with three words, death by boredom. We're just a bored culture. We're droning on our phones. We're drooling over TV. We're doing nothing all day. We're literally being bored until we die. It's death by boredom. What if right now, God, you would just say, enough is enough. I'm going to do something with my life. I'm going to be a person who seeks God's favor in my life like nobody else around me. I'm going to roll out of bed for this holy seeking of God's favor. Side note, I know the word and concept of favor has been hijacked by the prosperity gospel movement. Give me favor. I need favor. You got favor, 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 favor. 
Listen, I am not willing to submit or forfeit any Bible words to any movements, no matter how aired those movements are. Favor is a word in the Bible. That means it's our heritage, Christian. So let's talk about God's favor. Let's seek God's favor. Let's not be afraid to use that word. Secondly, I believe in a prosperity gospel. I preach a prosperity gospel. I just think that the prosperity the gospel gives us is not Cadillacs, but Christ. I believe the prosperity that we get from it. True health is holiness. True wealth is withness. And true prosperity right here in the text is presence. And that's what Moses is asking for when he asks for favor. Give me favor, God. Eleven times in this chapter, give me favor. What he's asking for is give me your presence. You, you are the gift of the gospel. And what does God say? He's not hard to convince, verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Have you ever been so amped in a fight where you say something and the person hears you, but then you say the same thing like they never heard you? Watch this. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. It's like, is there an echo in the room? He just said he's going with you. Verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? You want to understand vertical church? This is it. Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. The main point of this message is that it's God's going with us, God's manifest presence. That is the singular distinction of all humankind and of every single church. Last week we learned everyone's the same. Spiritually speaking, same longings, same sin, same condition. We're the same, we're the same, we're the same. And now this week, God's revealing the one and only thing that makes us different and distinct. It's not that you're smarter than anyone. It's not that we're better than anyone. It's actually not about us at all. It's entirely about him. The singular distinction of the church and every spirit-filled believer is the manifest presence of God. Boiled down into two words, him here. Only thing that matters. Moses is invited to enter the land flowing with milk and honey. He says, no way. I'm not going in there if you're not going with us because our thing, our only thing, the only thing we got working, other nations, they got milk, they got honey. The only thing we've got is you. Apparently, to those who had experienced manifest presence regularly, they knew that it was everything. And guys, we just got to get this. Especially those of us in our 20s and our 30s, this is it. This is what will make your life distinct. Contrary to what the culture is telling you, what makes you distinct is not the color of your skin or where you grew up or how many degrees you have or what you've accomplished in your career. What distinguishes a person is, is God with him or not? Not omnipresence. Manifestly, is God going before them? Is God accompanying them? Many of us here, we're, we're um, about to graduate college. We're thinking, man, how am I going to be set apart from my classmates? That's the question. Is God with you or not? Some of us are contemplating marriage. What's your marriage going to be about? This is it. 
Is God going to be in your marriage working mightily or not? What will make my home different from every other home on the street? Is God in your home or not? Is God with you? Everyone's starting a business. How how are we different? What's our value proposition? How are we going to set ourselves apart? This is it. God is with us. This is all about God. And if that's true for individuals, it's also true for the church. Guys, if anything makes vertical church distinct in the years to come, it can be only this. It's not going to be the quality of the music or the polish of the preacher or the beauty of the building. The only thing that can make this church distinct is, is God here or not? Manifestly, powerfully, efficaciously, is he here doing something that we cannot do for ourselves? Is he here working and moving and doing for us what we cannot do in our own power? And listen, if the answer to that is yes, then it just doesn't matter what else we lack. We've got everything. If that answer is yes in your life, it doesn't matter what what valley God takes you through. If you have the personal presence of Yahweh, God, you're good. Starting right here today, in obedience to Exodus 33, let's make the manifest presence of God the all-consuming passion of vertical church. Nothing else. We're not going to, this is what we're excited about, or this is what we're against. No, no, no. What we're excited about is God. That's what we're going after. God's manifest presence. Let's not become so preoccupied with activity for God that we forget that the only activity that really matters is activity by God. And starting today, let's just refuse flat out to be content with nothing less than God's active power and presence working among us. How often, especially our biblical Christians, content with faith actions that produce fruitless results. You're not supposed to be content with that. Well, we had the right doctrine, okay? Right doctrine is only as valuable as it leads to real encounter. Jesus said, you search the scriptures thinking in them you can have eternal life, not knowing that they testify to me. Doctrine is supposed to drive us into manifest presence. And any theology that contents us with God not moving in power, God not doing something awesome for his glory, God not producing fruit is from the pit of hell. Right theology, true theology teaches us to hunger for God and to get low and pray and fast and ask and beseech him to do more for his glory and our good. Spirit-inspired Moses is so not content with God's omnipresence in the promised land. He's saying, I'm begging you, God, come with us manifestly. And let's see if that pleases God. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this is the very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. If I found favor in your sight, then, then here's the ask. 
would you show me your glory? This is the prayer that is most at the heart of our church. If you're, when you drive on to church on Sunday mornings, please pray this prayer. Lord, show us your glory. The word glory is used almost 200 times in the Old Testament alone. It means weight or worth, and it's only used to reference God. The Greek word for glory is doxa, think like doxology, and it means the light that comes from something brilliant or radiant. You see, we, we can't see God. John 4.24, God is spirit, so we don't see God. We see God's glory. My definition of glory is the emanating evidences of God. Like sound waves, glory is everything that reverberates out from God and can be seen and tasted and sensed. A breathtaking sunset, a newborn baby, an amazing sushi dinner, all of those are emanating evidences of God. That's glory. I wrote a little poem to define glory. This might help you if you're a poet. As heat is to fire, as light is to the sun, as love is to desire, as sound is to the drum, so God's glory is to God. It's what comes forth from God. And that's just his general glory. It's something theologians call common grace or common revelation. That's the night sky, great coffee, good friends. Moses isn't praying for that. Moses is praying for special revelation. And that can be terrifying. Isaiah 6, Isaiah saw glory and it moved him to say, Woe is to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Revelation 1.17, John experienced glory and it caused him to fall at the feet of Jesus like a dead man. He passed out. Paul encountered the glory and it blinded him for three days. So Moses, I'm sure trembling because he knows God, musters up the courage, okay, I found favor in your sight, show me your glory. And now we see the glorious display. Watch this, verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory, verse 19, and he said, oh, underline this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. The good news, guys, even Moses saw it, is that the, God's glory is his goodness and God's goodness is his glory. Moses says, show me your glory. He says, okay, I'll show you my goodness. Verse 19, and here's more glory. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Verse 20, but he said, this is God speaking, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Before the Lord, this is, pa this is Passover language. Before the Lord passes by, pass, Mos pass over Moses, 
he makes two things very clear. First, man cannot behold God and live. Second, his face shall not be seen, only his back. Moses would die from beholding God's undiluted pre-incarnate glory. And so God, Moses doesn't decide this, in grace and mercy, God says, okay, stand on a rock, and that rock will serve as a shield to you. The Bible speaks often of the rock of refuge, and not until 1 Corinthians 10.4 do we learn that the rock is Christ. What God uses to pass over Moses is his own hand. And on the cross, God passovers his people with his own hands, with his own nail-pierced hands. Moses is told he can't see God's face, only his back, but in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we see, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Exodus 33 is not about God's manifest presence generically. It's about God's manifest presence specifically in Jesus. What's manifest presence in two words? Him here. What's manifest presence in one word? Jesus. Remember how Moses went outside the city to set up a tent of meeting, a tabernacle to commune with God? John 1.14, and the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We get to experience God's manifest presence, not because Moses went out to the city, but because Jesus went outside the city. Jesus is the manifest presence of Yahweh. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? You still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so the all-consuming passion of vertical church is the manifest presence of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Losing the presence of Jesus is the worst disaster that could ever happen. Seeking the presence of Jesus is the best decision we could ever make. Because the presence of Jesus is truly our singular distinction. The presence of Jesus is God's glorious display. John Wesley was one of the men God used more than anyone else in church history. In almost 90 years of life, Wesley traveled on horseback 250,000 miles. And he preached more than 40,000 sermons. Someone needs to do the math on that. He wrote over 400 books. He knew over 10 languages. God used Wesley to spark revival on two different continents. And as he lay dying on his bed, his family gathered around him. And a witness was there, thankfully, that recorded what Wesley said in his final words. You know, final words are lasting words. Here was a man who knew the scriptures almost by heart. He could have voiced a thousand 
truths in that triumphant moment. According to record, Wesley sat up and he said, quote, Best of all, God is with us. Then he fell back, thrust his head in the air, and using his final gasp to repeat it one more time with emphasis, the best of all, God is with us. And he died. Guys, that's how I want us to die. And that's how I want us to live, believing that the best of all, the singular distinction, is God with us. Amen. Let's pray.